As a matter of fact, as God comes in his judicial wrath into the garden after the fall, he does not withdraw from man. They, of course, seek to withdraw from him, to hide, to cover themselves. But God does not abandon, even for a moment. And we discover then uh, the God who immediately comes seeking Seeking man in his shame, his fear, and above all, his sense of guilt. Westminster Media presents Word and Spirit, a podcast study of the life and theology of Richard B. Gaffin, Jr. I'm your host, Nate Shannon, and in this show, we'll hear about the intersection of theology and life and the changing of hearts and minds and how one life dedicated to exploring the truth can guide others down ancient paths to see our Redeemer, Christ Jesus, in word and spirit. This is the story of a theologian, of a first-rate, world-class New Testament scholar and systematics professor whose body of work stands quietly in the confluence of two great church traditions, Scottish Presbyterianism and Dutch Neo-Calvinism. But unless you've gone to seminary or happen to subscribe to peer-reviewed academic journals, there's a good chance you've never heard of Richard B. Gaffin, Jr. If you haven't met Gaffin or read his work, terms like eschatology, soteriology, epistemology, or hermeneutics might not be familiar. But they're just another way of saying that the classes he's taught and the books and essays that Gaffin has written have a tendency to change the way you think about God and time, about Jesus's incarnation, life, crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension, about what we know is true, about how we read the Old Testament in light of the New Testament. But Gavin's theology isn't abstract ivory tower stuff that's fun to talk about in the classroom or online. It's a cosmic, existential, and paradigm-shifting theology that has helped Christians, pastors, missionaries, teachers, and counselors work through problems of Christian suffering and the gifts of the Spirit, end times prophecy, and the origins of mankind. So this isn't just a story about a theologian. It's a story about theology, about how one man has spent his life exploring ancient paths that have led him and us to see Christ in a way that you may have never seen him before as the resurrected redeemer of a broken and anxious world. Our story begins on July 7, 1936, in Beijing, China, with the birth of Richard Birch Gaffin, Jr. His parents, Richard and Pauline, were Presbyterian missionaries who had arrived in China after Richard had finished seminary the year before, studying under J. Gresham Machen at the newly founded Westminster Theological Seminary in Philadelphia. This was a dramatic time to be a Westminster-trained missionary. As Richard and Pauline were preparing to leave for China, Machen founded a controversial independent missions board in protest of what he saw as the liberalization of American Presbyterianism and missions. Not long after, Machen would be defrocked and then helped to found a new denomination, the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. 
Richard and Pauline would join both organizations as they left the States to begin their ministry in China. Gaffin's older sister, Margie Pope, recalls how dangerous a time it was to serve in China. Each term on the mission field was five years. So it was getting close to that. And my dad talked to the mission board, OPC, and uh, told them that he would like to stay six more months because he said, when we leave here, we will not be able to come back for a while. So they let us stay five and a half. And so we came home in June, July of 41. And that's Pearl Harbor was in the fall. So we did not have to go to concentration camp, which was a blessing for us. Many of our friends did that were over there at the time. The Gaffins would serve in China for more than five years, welcoming another son, Harold, in the meantime. But in 1941, as the Second World War closed in around them, they were forced to return to the United States. For Richard Jr., it would be the first time he'd been to America. I My earliest memory of him was him having a temper tantrum stomping his feet and screeching at about five years old. Okay. (laughs) That's my first memory of him. When the Gaffins returned to the United States, Richard Sr. found new opportunities for ministry. Although J. Gresham Machen had died suddenly not long after the Gaffins' mission in China began, the fledgling Orthodox Presbyterian Church he'd founded had grown into a national denomination. The reputation of Westminster Seminary had also been further established by professors like R.B. Kuyper, E.J. Young, and Cornelius Van Til, all of whom speak at Richard Sr.'s ordination service. Welcoming their fourth child, John, in 1942, the Gaffins moved to Wisconsin, where Richard Sr. would serve as pastor of Grace OPC in Milwaukee. The Orthodox Presbyterian Church is so tiny and so struggling, and it has no money. Here's Danny Ollinger, longtime friend and biographer of Richard Gaffin. But they are utterly, uh, his parents are utterly convinced of the cause of Machen and of the Reformed faith. And so the one opportunity they have is to go to Milwaukee, uh, where his grandparents lived. And uh, there, uh, his uh, grandfather, Harold, was a ruling elder in the uh, OPC. And his dad and his uh, his grandfather basically came the session for a church plant in Milwaukee. And the family poured themselves into it for five years and really built Grace Church in Milwaukee. And Dick, so Dick uh, uh, was uh, in regard to being a part of Sunday school and his parents' outreach and in the local uh, community, he experienced all that. In November of 1947, Richard received permission to return to China. He departed the same month, but alone, so that the children could remain in school. However, Richard's return to China would be short-lived 
Again, war would force him to make a narrow escape from Shanghai in 1949. In 1951, Richard would return to East Asia, this time to Taiwan. But Taiwan was a place where uh, he then explored and uh, came to the conclusion that uh, this would be a good place for a mission. So he came back briefly, but his father did go in 1951 to Taiwan by himself and was there for three years. Meanwhile, Pauline, the three boys, and Margie had moved to Pennsylvania, just a short distance from Westminster and their new church home at Calvary OPC in Glenside, where Richard Jr. would make a public profession of faith in the spring of 1951. In September of that year, he began attending William Penn Charter School, graduating with honors in 1954. After high school, Gaffin decided to accept an academic scholarship to the University of Southern California. He majored in mathematics, played the clarinet in the marching band, and worked an office job with the William M. Jorgensen Steel Company. He, he, uh, he was in the marching band. Here's Steve, Richard's second oldest son. And I believe they were spelling USC on the field. And... This is either the 35 instead of the 40 or vice versa, but he led the line down the wrong yard line so that the letters were not symmetrical or, or evenly sized, if you will. Though it wasn't because of that mishap, after his sophomore year, Gaffin would not return to California. Along the way, Gaffin's interests had progressed from mathematics to philosophy, and he was drawn to Calvin College. Gaffin had close friends attending Calvin, including Bernard Chip Stonehouse, Donald Duff, and Peter Stain. But it was Jean Young, daughter of Edward and Lillian Young, who may have had the greatest influence. Dick and Jean had first met at French Creek Bible Conference in 1949, and their friendship had grown at Calvary Church in Glenside. They started dating in high school and were reunited at Calvin. My understanding is they met at French Creek. Um, and I, I, we don't know a lot of details, but dad's been with one, in love with one woman since that day he met my mom. And it was love at first sight for my dad and he, he pursued her and uh, won her over, so. Richard and Jean Gaffin were married on August 23, 1958. Only a couple of weeks later, the Gaffins would return to Pennsylvania for Richard to begin his studies at Westminster Theological Seminary. Gaffin had spent the previous summer at Westminster's Glenside campus. He had read Ned Stonehouse's biography of J. Gresham Machen and the entirety of Machen's literary corpus. Like his parents, Gaffin became convinced that Machen individually, Westminster institutionally, and the Orthodox Presbyterian Church ecclesiastically had acted in a God-honoring manner by taking bold stands for confessional Presbyterianism and historic Christianity during the tumultuous 1920s and 1930s. Now a student at Westminster, Gaffin gravitated toward New Testament studies under Stonehouse and John Murray. Each promoted the biblical theological teaching of Gerhardus Voss, as did Cornelius Van Til in Apologetics, Meredith Klein in Old Testament, 
and Edmund Clowney in Practical Theology. Gaffin was especially drawn to the biblical theological work of Voss while he worked on his master's thesis, which focused on John Calvin's doctrine of the Sabbath. In Voss's classic text, Biblical Theology of the Old and New Testaments, Gaffin found that Voss anticipated some of the very questions he himself had been asking. This confluence of John Murray and Gerhardus Voss was one that would have significant implications for Gaffin's theology. As Voss's theological genius was making an impression on Gaffin, Gaffin was making an impression on the faculty at Westminster. He was awarded a faculty stipend for graduate study with the provision that it be used abroad. So, in September of 1962, Gaffin set off with his family, young Richard III, still a babe in arms, for study at Georg August Universität in Göttingen, Germany. Westminster Seminary, like Princeton, had a tradition. Here again is Danny Ollinger. In which the outstanding student would receive a scholarship to go study abroad. Uh, Jay Gresson Machen had studied abroad under winning that scholarship at uh, Princeton. Uh, before him, Gerhardus Voss had done so. Um, and so uh, uh, there were others like Nebby Stonehouse that went over. And so when Dick uh, was uh, finishing up at Westminster in 1960, he was the one that they recognized and awarded the scholarship to 6061 uh, to go study uh, in Europe. And so he was recognized as having this, this giftedness. At Göttingen, Gaffin considered writing his doctoral dissertation under either Joachim Jeremias or Hans Konsumann. But ultimately, he didn't settle on doctoral studies in Germany. Gaffin believed that the year in Germany was nonetheless valuable to his development as a theologian, making him hermeneutically sensitive and sealing his appreciation for Van Til's presuppositional apologetics. When Gaffin returned to Philadelphia in the summer of 1963, he took a job as a statistician for National Liberty Life Insurance to support his growing family. A second son, Stephen, was born in 1964, and a daughter, Liesel, would follow in 1967. But his career in insurance was to be short-lived. Westminster would hire him in 1964 as a teaching fellow, promoting him not long after to instructor in New Testament. In Gaffin's lectures, students were experiencing for the first time the unique combination of influences that would come to define Gaffin's theology. The orthodoxy of Machen beautifully intertwined with the presuppositional apologetic of Van Til and the redemptive historical insights of Gerhardus Voss. This combination represented a significant step forward in Reformed theology, one that is perhaps best seen in Gaffin's doctoral dissertation Resurrection and Redemption, a study in Pauline soteriology. In his dissertation, Gaffin followed the lead of Voss and Murray as he presented union with the risen Christ as central to the believer's salvation. In the year 2000, Gaffin distilled some of the elements of that earlier study into a shorter essay titled Redemption and Resurrection. In this essay, Gaffin looks at 1 Corinthians chapter 15, 
along with other New Testament passages, to examine the significance of the resurrection of Christ for the individual believer. Redemption and resurrection is an excellent starting point for understanding Gaffin's theology. Gaffin articulates the spirit of his theological method, the redemptive historical and exegetical methods of Voss and Murray, and he applies those tools to the interpretation of Scripture, and he draws conclusions, both doctrinal and practical, for Christian life and encouragement. What makes this essay special and Gaffin's theological method so special has gripped students and readers for decades. To dive deeper, I asked Dave Garner, professor of systematic theology at Westminster and co-editor of the new publication of Gaffin's shorter writings, Word and Spirit, about Gaffin's essay, Redemption and Resurrection. I would say one of the most helpful things in this essay, and of course, more broadly in, in Dr. Gaffin's works, is to demonstrate that the power of the resurrection is not there just to impress us. That we don't just look at that and go, wow, God can raise somebody from the dead. Maybe he can raise me from the dead too. What Dr. Gaffin does in this essay is demonstrate the paucity, the, the, the weakness, the anemia, as it were, of such a view, because it neglects the very essence of what Paul is seeking to argue about the resurrection. And in this essay, uh, Dr. Gaffin will demonstrate how the first fruits language that Paul uses in a couple of places in his work is there actually to demonstrate the, the resurrection is actually a, a single resurrection, that believers are in the same harvest, as it were. Christ's resurrection is not to be viewed as coming from another set of crops. It, it is a single resurrection. There's a unity of the resurrection, and as, as Dr. Gaffin will put it, an unbreakable unity because Christ is the firstborn from the dead. And to be firstborn actually means, of course, there are others that are going to follow, like the author of Hebrews will put it, that this son is leading many sons to glory. He doesn't just do his redemptive work and rise from the dead to impress us or to persuade us with the power of God, but embedded in that resurrection itself is our resurrection. And that's what, what Paul is so careful to argue, that if you don't read him carefully, you can neglect that organism, that, that, that chief unity, the integrity of the resurrection, as it were, as it were an organic unity of, of one resurrection. Gaffin's treatment of Scripture is profound, but like all profound theological ideas, there needs to be some practical use for the church. I asked Dave Garner about the practical value of Gaffin's emphasis on the resurrection and its redemptive historical significance. Sin is real, struggle is real, and guess what? Suffering is real. The pathway to glory, as Paul makes abundantly clear for Christ, was a pathway of suffering to glory. Guess what it is for his followers? A pathway of suffering to glory. It is only those, Romans 8, 17, who are joint heirs with Christ in his suffering that will also be joint heirs with him in his glory. 
So here's the difference for us, though. We actually live in an age in which Christ is already glorified. So in the context of our suffering, we have a glorified Christ who, by his Spirit, indwells us. Our feelings don't bear on that. It is actually true. So we are in the process, as Paul will tell us in Romans 12, for example, we need to have our minds renewed. Because when I'm not feeling a certain way, it's because I'm not thinking the way that I ought to be thinking. And my mind constantly needs to be renewed with what is actually true. What is also striking for me in this is that Paul will actually tie this to preaching. The resurrection gives power to preaching. In other words, Paul will even say there is no preaching if there's no resurrection. That's how serious he is about preaching. So what do I need to do? I need to sit under that word faithfully preached where the Spirit will take that word and renew me and and continue to change me. So our hope is not in how I'm feeling at the moment. Our hope is not in the fact that just maybe one day I'll overcome this temptation. I do have everything I need, as Peter will put it, for life and godliness. I have it all right now. But I am also, I still have the battle with indwelling sin. Suffering is real. So this in no way is seeking to make little of that but it is to demonstrate the greatness of our sin is met by a power that is greater still, and we cannot not be resurrected from the dead. I asked Dave how pastors and teachers can apply these insights from Gaffin's article in their churches and in their ministry to the people of God. The pastoral implications of this to kind of take us all the way back to where we started. Dr. Gaffin has worked very carefully through the texts concerning the resurrection, concerning suffering, and they're complex. And as he's worked through the complex, he's brought it down to this level of simplicity, that this is the essence of what it means to be a a Christian, that there is an inseparable bond between faith and suffering. And perhaps one of the, the implicit rebukes for us is how often are we actually surprised when new suffering comes. And I think part of what he is getting at is that that even the surprise factor evidences a statement of unbelief in our hearts, and that this particular resurrection-framed life uh, actually addresses robustly. And so maybe to bring this full circle in my mind, what is it that I love about Dr. Gaffin's work? Well, I've mentioned its theological robustness that takes us to a place of clarity and simplicity where it is, as it were, the Scriptures just resounding in our minds and hearts. It just rings true with our hearts when we read it in its faithful and, and clear exposition. But it also draws us to a place of worship. There's a doxological component to this that is, is inescapable when you read Dr. Gaffin's work. Here's a man who actually submits himself to the text because he knows it's God's Word, and then seeks to articulate this text in a way that's helpful and clear for us because he wants us to yield to and delight in the very same Word that he does because he believes that's what God has called us to. And so there's a deeply doxological and pastoral implication, frankly, of every single thing that he writes. And the simpleness of the man is actually eclipsed by the the spiritual sight 
that he actually helps us gain by his labors over the text from biblical to systematic theology. Many thanks to my guest, David Garner. If you're interested in learning more, you can read the essay, Redemption and Resurrection in Word and Spirit, a new book from Westminster Seminary Press that collects 41 of Gaffin's best theological essays. And if you want to go a step further, you can pick up a copy of Gaffin's book-length treatment of the topic, Resurrection and Redemption, published by PNR Publishers and available at wtsbooks.com. Join us next time for episode two of Word and Spirit, The Usefulness of the Cross. This episode of Word and Spirit was based on a brief biography of Richard B. Gaffin Jr. by Danny E. Allinger in Word and Spirit, selected writings on biblical and systematic theology by Richard B. Gaffin Jr., edited by David B. Garner and Guy Prentice Waters published by Westminster Seminary Press, and on the Reverend Dr. Richard B. Gaffin, Jr., Sancti Libri Theologicus Magnus Westmonasteriensis, by Peter A. Lilbach, published in The Ordained Servant. The episode was hosted by Nathan Shannon and produced by Jimmy Atkins and Josh Curry. Special thanks to Ben Dalving, Josiah Pettit, and Paul Quorum. This episode was a production of Westminster Media, a publishing and production ministry of Westminster Theological Seminary. To learn more about today's show, you can visit Westminster Media's website, wm.wts.edu, and find free articles, videos, and podcasts from more than 90 years of Westminster's mission to train specialists in the Bible to proclaim the whole counsel of God for Christ and His global church. Thank you for listening.